God bless and welcome to this week's episode of Family Discussion. We are so glad that you've joined us today. Family Discussion is a podcast of Reform Margins, a site dedicated to providing a platform for people of color to engage the larger Reformed and Evangelical conversations. Jesus teaches us in the Gospel of John that the world will know that we are his followers by the way that we love one another. And yet it seems like the love of Jesus is less and less evident in the way that we speak to and about one another, especially when we disagree. So, in the hopes of recapturing the brother-sister love that Jesus has won for us, we are calling a family meeting. For the next half hour, let's cut through the noise and look at the issues without slander and malice. It's time for a family discussion. God bless and welcome to today's episode of Family Discussion. It is wonderful to be with you all today. My name is Marcus Ortega. I'm one of your hosts. And with me, as always, is the astounding Lisa Spencer. Lisa, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you? It's a a nice sunny day here in Roanoke, Virginia. Um, Good day to sit outside, you know, because we can't really do much else. (laughs) So... It is gorgeous up here in New York. It's it really is. People are wisely, um, you know, that they're able to to still keep the social distancing in mind, but also get out a little bit and enjoy the the beauty of the day. Um, it is it has been a beautiful weekend, and and praising God for that. Now, some people have been taking advantage of the beautiful weather. And have been partaking in large group protests. And so uh, what we're going to talk about today a little bit is um, really it's going to cover a couple different topics. We're going to start with the blame game that it really people people love to blame folks for things that are out of their control. Mm-hmm. If it's out of your control, I'm going to blame somebody else so that I'm able to, I think, channel my anger towards something, mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. I'm frustrated and I don't want to just live in my frustration. I want to pour it out on somebody. Right. Um, and then from that conversation, we'll probably move into, well, where is that frustration coming from? Which is the whole the whole debate over what is opening, what is reopening the economy actually look like, right? Because right. everybody is clear now mm-hmm. that the health crisis is beginning to get brought under control, beginning to be. There's still a long way to go in getting the health crisis under control. But the economic crisis is going to be profound on the heels of the health crisis. So there's yes. a whole lot of things to talk about. Um, Lisa, when you see the protests that are going on out there and the desire to blame, what's what, what goes through your head on these? So much. <laughs> <laughs> So much. Well, first of all, I, you know, so I get the, I get the anger, I get the frustration, but I have to ask, what is the impetus? What is the motivation? Is it because you're out of work and your job has been shut down and you don't think it should be shut down um, and you can't provide for your family? Or is it something that is considered to be more fundamental, you know, my right to be able to go to work, you know, not having government tell me what to do. And by the way, I'm even seeing this from my friends on the right. Some of them were more extreme ones um, with this, you know, the mandate to wear masks. 
and equating it with communist China. I'm sorry. Either we have, maybe we have a breakdown in our educational system, you know, (laughs) um, a democracy, a public health crisis in a democracy that says wear a mask is nowhere near equivalent to communist China, right? They tell their people to wear a mask and oh, they may get arrested, you know, for not wearing a mask. But that is indicative of a larger system in place we, that we do not have. This is about safety. It is about protecting other people from your germs. And, right. and can we not do that for this time, time being? And that's the important thing, right? It's not even about protecting yourself. The mask does not protect you from getting COVID. It protects others from getting what you might have because there's so many asymptomatic carriers of COVID-19, which is what makes this different from things like the flu. It's, right. There's so many people who have it who don't know. Right. And, and that's another thing. So when I see these protests now, our president has made the statement at least a couple times that the protests were being done safely. I'm sorry. I've seen a picture of a number of the protests. I see people standing next to each other. They're angry. There are signs they're not. Um, nobody's wearing a mask. Nobody's wearing gloves. They're not standing six feet apart. Uh, the uh, pictures of the, the protest in Michigan oh, recently. Man where you have these very angry men who are, there's this one picture that's just kind of got, gone viral, the dude with the beard. And yeah, so you see the police or the, the guards or the policemen, I'm, I'm assuming they're policemen that are standing there with their mask and he has no mask and he's in their face while mouth wide open. So that says to me, like either you it says to me that they're not taking this seriously, that there has been um, this sentiment, and particularly on those on the right, that this is a, it's a hoax, it's not that serious, we don't need to wear masks. And oh, by the way, nobody's going to tell us what to do. That is sort of the undergirding principle that I see going on. Um, and even when you look at pro- these protests on the beach, uh, mm. now listen, <laughs> okay, we, we could talk, you know, let's have a debate about the government, you know, whether the government has a right during a public health crisis, mm-hmm. you know, to dictate what, what we can and cannot do. Um, and, you know, and, 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 you know, because we're looking at this broader picture of an economic um, you know, the profound economic impact that, you know, people want, like, on, look, I'm well, you know, there are some people out there saying, look, I'm willing to take the risk. Just put me at, just put me back to work. But when I see you at the beach and you're complaining that you can't go to the beach, I'm sorry. Just when I, and especially when I look at how this thing has impacted right. a whole swatch of people in different ways and you're protesting about the beach, I'm sorry. I can't even begin to muster up any kind of sympathy for that <laughs> position. I just can't. But but let's think about the the idea here, right? Is is it's a it's a it's a protest that is couched in the idea of liberty. Mm-hmm. Right? Life, liberty have, and the pursuit of happiness. Right. And it's really the pursuit of diversion at this point. It's mm-hmm. the pursuit of entertainment. I want to go do my fun thing, and if my fun thing 
is going to put others at risk, I still have the right to do my fun thing, like go to the beach, right? Or if mm-hmm. you think about Michigan, and, and this was the disturbing thing, the the amount of people who went into a public facility armed to the teeth to scream in the faces of the police, I'm sorry, like we are we are a country, I know people get uncomfortable when we make this correlation, but we are a country that just watched protest after protest after protest in the Black Lives Matter movement over people dying, right? So let's let's go back to Tamir Rice, those protests. And if, if we're going to, if we're going to equate the two, it seems strange to me that all of a sudden the police are the bad guys from the folks who can't go to the beach like th- this is this is where i get really frustrated it's it was really terrible to protest the actions of the police until y'all were inconvenienced by the actions of the police mm-hmm. like there were folks dying they were folks dying in the streets before now people are are being inconvenienced and i know that that's that sounds ret- like rhetoric and it sounds mm-hmm. pretty flamethrowy but it is that that's a little bit my well, frustration it is, but listen here. it is and anyone who's been paying attention cannot help but make that observation and i'll tell you what mm-hmm. these protesters now have absolutely nothing zero notes zilch nada to say about any protest from nope. any other group going forward no i want to hear a word you have no you have no ground to stand None. on now so next time Black Lives Matter, you know, I've had my issues with it, with Black Lives Matter. We will probably mm-hmm. disagree on that. But the next time a group of Black Lives Matter uh, gets out and protests against pl- police brutality, you must remain silent. You <laughs> cannot done. say anything. Nothing. Nope. Argument ended. And, Argument ended. And- <laughs> but it, I think it also, but you, but you bring up a really interesting point that the probably the same people who were very quick to defend the police mm-hmm. against the protesters now all of a sudden the police are the bad guys is their representative of a larger system right and so i can't help but think that maybe this goes back to that disease that we are all born with that you know that um expresses itself in profound self-interest right Mm -hmm. what is in it for me what is best for me and this this, and that's the kind of thing that produces hypocrisy Mm. well and i think it's thinking about that disease of sin that that gets introduced in genesis 3 i think we see immediately when we um, are either caught in sin or when we go through suffering, we look for somebody to blame, mm-hmm. right? What What is the response of the man in the garden? He blames the woman. Mm-hmm. And it was the that woman, woman you gave me. Right, right, right. And then the woman says, but it was the serpent, mm-hmm. right? And, and I think that's true when it's sin. I think it's also true when it's something that's out of our control. We look for someone to blame, because it does, it, it channels our anger in such a way that we're able to feel like we're being productive in the middle of our suffering. 
Yeah. If we can find somebody to blame for our suffering, well, now we can go to war against that person who is causing my suffering. Mm -hmm. I don't have to just sit in my suffering and allow God to teach me through my suffering, mm -hmm. which is what suffering is supposed to do in the life of the Christian, mm -hmm. right? Suffering produces character, which produces hope, according to the Amen. New Testament. But suffering produces blame, which produces some kind of social media screed is uh -huh. is more that's more the way we like to go in our 2020 connected world right and, and what's interesting to me is that well first of all here's one observation and i actually put this on facebook the other day uh, i just find it interesting whatever your bent is and who you want to blame you can pretty much find a whole lot of people to support your view. You can find articles oh, and supposedly yeah. by professionals and scientists and economists and whatever view you want, whoever you want to blame, you can be sure you can find some resources to support it. Which is interesting to me because if we look at the multidimensional facets of this thing and how it's, you know, um, you know, what not just in terms of the impact of what but the responses and what's the correct response and particularly when you're dealing with it's still a lot of unknowns you know and that's the then that's the the trick right so we're you know we're kind of ramping up on testing we're you know we're ramping up on um you know understanding infection rates and where you know where and how this spread but we don't know and that's another reason i think we blame this because we like certainty we're uncomfortable mm. with not knowing i know i am right this is why i'm a numbers hound i'm like what are the numbers you know every day you know you know in virginia we get that the the department of health you know nine o'clock i'm you know i'm on my phone and <laughs> what did that how much did they go up what did the grass look like yeah. you know because we like that certainty we like kind of knowing where we're going and when that's pulled out from under us mm. we're just kind of grasping for straws and if we don't get a handle on that you know james talks about we sin when we're enticed by our own lust that's mm. just that's not you know necessarily referencing sexual sin right. our lust is that you know that thing within us that wants those inordinate desires mm. um and so in our discomfort with that uncertainty and with the you know the fear and the anxiety of what's going on and you're right that, you know, we're going to blame somebody. And depending on what side of the aisle that you're on, you know, it's it's Trump's fault. Mm -hmm. It's China's fault. It's the Democrats fault. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just been amazing to me. Meanwhile, the virus is out here. It's not discriminating. It's like we're out here. We're, mm -hmm. Where are you at? You know, <laughs> mm -hmm. this is what this is what we do. We affect people. Well, this is what we're doing, right? We're we for straws and, and really, you know, we grasp for straw men. So we don't even no. really deal with the arguments or the rationales of the people that would disagree with us. We just, we get our feelings and we get our echo chamber excited about what we're excited about or antagonized about what we're antagonized about. And, and we start and, and we go to war. Mm -hmm. And it's not even that we disagree with a particular line of argument. We just know we're supposed to hate them. And so we go against them. Like we let's take Michigan as an example. There are a lot of people who take issue with the way that the governor of Michigan has handled this. 
but a reasoned debate about the the restrictions is not what's happening. This is yeah. not people getting together and saying, "Listen, you've gone too far. We need to roll this back." We're um, this isn't a peaceful, silent protest when you are occupying the Capitol building with armed militia. Like that's <laughs> that's not what we're looking at here. And and I don't want anybody to ever make another connection between them and the civil rights folks because I tell you what, if the civil rights it's folks insulting. had tried to occupy a Capitol building armed to the teeth, it would have been a bloodbath. It is right. insulting and it is completely historically inaccurate. Right. I mean, because we're, we're look, we're talking about less than two months. Right. Of discomfort. Compared to, uh, what, two centuries? <laughs> yeah, compared um, to starting sometime in the 1600s. Right. Um, you know, two centuries of a, you know, a denial of the opportunity as for equal citizenship. Uh, that Absurdity. was, that's, that's the reality. And so it is, to me, it is highly insulting to compare your five weeks of discomfort with decades upon decades of a denial of civil rights. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No question. And, and it's, it's something that I think we are, we're seeing maybe because of the quarantine, because of the social distancing, because we're, we're kept, we're cooped to ourselves with nothing but our internet echo chambers. Mm -hmm. The polarization is getting worse and worse and worse. Mm -hmm. And um, our frustration is building. And, and I tell you, I'm concerned that we're going to see something horrifying pop off um, because the temperature keeps rising on this. There's there's no way to have a release valve because everything's shut down. And so that, I think, maybe leads us to this question. When we talk about reopening, what are we talking about? How do we, like there are a whole host of different ways to approach this. Um <laughs> How do we reopen things in such a way that it kind of helps a release valve for the tension that's growing? Yeah. And I think, you know, rightly there are some governors who are, you know, really grappling with that. Um, I know that, you know, having lived in Texas for 10 and a half years, of course, mm -hmm. I'm, you know, connected to a lot of Texas folks. And some of them are really grumbling about the, you know, his, day of, his executive order expired on April 30th. And he put new protocols in place to, and slowly – it wasn't like – you know, so he slowly reopened the, the economy. It wasn't like, oh, by the way, everything goes back to normal. Right. When I read what the protocols were, I'm like – I thought – to be honest with you, I thought it was reasonable, you know, okay. and not every business can open. Um, and that, you know, that sort of leads me to another question because even here in Virginia, mm -hmm. now – in in south in the southwest part of Virginia, you know, like I said, I look at the numbers every day. Now our testing really went up this week, so our numbers okay. went up. Yeah. But still, even in where I live in Roanoke County, it's at fifty three cases. Right. The city has now gone up to eighty, but I know that's because the testing went up. And that's cases, not deaths, right? That's cases. We've right. had zero deaths, right? So Roanoke County, Roanoke City. Salem, Salem is now at 26. I look at the surrounding counties. There are like, you know, one is like 25, the other. So we're, but if you go to the other end of the state, right, Fairfax County has over 4,000 cases. Yeah. Um, Arlington, I believe, you know, which is right outside of D.C., 
has, I want to say it's a thousand. I, I can't remember, but that, it, but there's a significant difference right. between where we are and Northern Virginia. So, you know, so the you know, and the governor has been asked in a couple of his press briefings, are will you look at it regionally, right? Because we don't need the same kinds of restrictions that Northern Virginia does, right. and we definitely don't need the same kind of restrictions that New York, and particularly downstate New York, needs. Right. Um, so to be able to look at it, you know, in a smart way. And here's the thing, and we talked about this before we started recording, because I've been grappling with this question of what what can be open, what can be open, and safely, right? Yeah. So we know when this happened, the stay-at-home orders went down, but essential businesses were allowed to stay open. Right. And those essential businesses have put protocols in place. There's been a big emphasis on, you know, uh, wearing masks, wearing gloves, which I do. I go, mm -hmm. I go to the store. I haven't really decreased my shopping. I, yeah. you know, I put on my mask. I, I have a supply of gloves in the car. I have a couple okay. of cloth masks. I have disinfectant wipes, which I hope they kind of reemerge sometime soon because <laughs> there is not a disinfectant wipe to be found on this planet. It's no, amazing gone. to me. Um, <laughs> Help is chloride. But and even today, I was, I was in Walmart this morning, and I even noticed that they had. Not that anybody's paying attention to them, but they even had like directional markers. So the yeah. aisles, like you can only go down one, one aisle, way one way. Of course, you know, I saw people, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. I'm like, yeah, who's going to obey that? But, but the point is, is that there are, you know, now that we know more, we know that there are more, you know, that we can put these kind of safety protocols. So it's been leading me to ask the question, since we know this, and we're doing this with essential business because people are out. People are about. And you know why? Because they want to be. You know, people are on target because the mall is closed. Let's, I mean, let's just be honest about that. Right. Um, most of them are wearing masks. You can always tell the ones that are taking it seriously. And you have to kind of make sure you do your defensive social distancing. But I've been asking the question, okay, so if we're doing that, with these businesses, why can't more businesses be open with the same kind of protocols in place so that you are relieving that tension so that more people can be employed? Not so many people have to be out of work. You know, I was all for when it first started, I'm like, it's, look, this thing is contagious. We don't know what it is. Let's shut everything. I was down. You know, I was, I would have even been okay with the two week quarantine, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Um, but as I, as it's progressing and as we're, you know, getting more information and particularly in your state where, you know, we had that, you know, Cuomo has been doing this antibody testing, which has been giving some really good information right. in terms of the estimated number of people that have probably had it, which is a lot more than the numbers we're seeing. Yeah. We're millions and millions of folks. Millions of people just in New York. Yeah. So, so we know that, okay, one, it's highly contagious, you know, two, it's probably not as deadly, even though, unfortunately, sadly, 66, I just picked up the numbers, 66,000 people have lost their lives. And that's, that's tragic. That's unfortunate. It probably most likely would have been more had protocols not been put in place, you know, but, but I think that to ask the question of, 
with the information that we have now, with this thing kind of have having spread the way it has, you know, you know, can more businesses now be safely open? I think it's a, a legitimate and reasonable question. I think it is a reasonable question, although I think the answer to that for me is is much more cautious and careful than um, we may hear from some of our more conservative friends, um, which is strange. I'm being more conservative on the opening than our conservative friends are. I don't, this, is why, this is why labels don't work, folks. It doesn't. Um, but, you know, I, I, so here's here's some of the things that, I, that, that come to mind as we think about reopening right now. I am in New York, and so, um, you know, I, this is a little closer to home just because I got folks in my church who have relatives who died from this. Praise the Lord. I'm not aware of anyone in our congregation who has died mm-hmm. just from COVID. We had, my husband lost his first cousin who was yeah. in New York. To birth. Um, we have a sister-in-law. who is, is the, So the wife of his youngest brother is recovering from it now. Wow. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry to hear that. You know, that that's that's the reality of this, right? People are dying and New York is where people have died a lot. I mean, we're we're it's it's very tragic. One of the things that I, I think we need to consider are um, in order to open up the economy. And I understand there needs to be some kind of an opening of the economy at some point. If the business is unable to operate with social distancing in place, should that business be? Um, be opened up now the, one of the first things that comes to mind right are people who are in the the beauty industry well you ain't social distancing if you got your hands all over somebody's feet or your hands all over somebody's hair so how do we do that safely what protocols are in place how do we make that happen? like i'm not saying don't do it i'm saying that the 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 rigor of being able to reopen must be pretty high um, we got to think through. I think the reason essential business was so important is we got to have we, we got to have essential services to be able to continue to survive as people, not just as an economy. So now we're going to non-essential businesses and aren't there for the survival of the people, but are there for the survival of the economy. Now, I understand that helps people, too. I'm not saying that. I was going to say, because, you know, with certain people, uh, they would consider uh, beauty shops and uh, barbershops an essential business. You know, this, I'm is, just saying. this is why I am glad to be bald today. Is <laughs> All I need is my wife to take a razor and and boom, 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 gone. I'm taken care of. But but here's here's the other thing. Right. Here, here's. Here's some concerns I have. So regional, the regional question in Virginia. We have the same question in New York. Downstate New York infection rate is much higher than upstate New York infection rate. But if you reopen upstate, how do you keep people from downstate going upstate and vice versa? Like, uh, what... Are we going to start putting checkpoints everywhere? And if your driver's license says that you're from Westchester County, you can't head over to Syracuse? Like, that becomes incredibly unwieldy to me. So I feel like the state has to act like the state. Um, and now we have the question, okay, what about those folks who are, their employer is now reopening, but they don't want to put themselves at risk by going back to work along folks they don't know if they're COVID positive or not. Maybe they have underlying health issues or something like that. Well, there's some governors out there who are saying that if you don't come back to work, you're quitting and you don't get unemployment. Now, So there's a whole lot of questions for me. Are you going to force your workers to come back even if they feel like they're putting their lives at risk to come back and get an economic engine going again? Like uh, for both of us at the top of the priority list is the preservation of life. 
-hmm. How do we preserve that life? That's where we've had this disagreement before when it comes to the economy. But these are some of the questions, like even regionally, right? So New York is acting in concert with Connecticut and New Jersey and a couple mm -hmm. other states because there's so much traffic back and forth. Right. And so if you're going to open up Connecticut, well, then folks from the city are headed straight over to Connecticut. They're headed straight down to New Jersey and you've got a boom in infection rate again. And, and so, you know, what is to stop somebody from New York for traveling, you know, from, from New York City to Washington, D.C., hey, about four or five hour drive, right? Um, but a lot of people make that drive. They work in D.C. and they live up here. They, wow. they get on the train. They do that. I think it's crazy, but they do that. It they live crazy. up here basically three days a week and down there four days a week. Um, how are you going to how, how are you going to open up in Virginia where a lot of these jobs are and not affect what's going on in New York? So mm -hmm. I think when we talk about these questions about reopening, we are um, opening a whole lot of cans of worms mm -hmm. that we have to seriously consider. What about the South where you got New Orleans? which became a hotbed for COVID, um, you know, if they go to the next state over that opened up, have they just, are they going to destroy that state? Or or are, are folks going to come in to to New Orleans and make it even more? Like, there's, there's a lot of questions that we have to ask. I don't think it's as easy as, well, people need to work. They do, but, oh, man, this is not a simple equation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, you know, it's not. And and, and here's something, and, and please, um, whoever's listening to this, don't send me any angry emails. It's, I'm, I'm thinking out loud here. Well, definitely don't send them to me. Send them all to her. <laughs> I know. Blame me. That's what, that's, we need more <laughs> of that, you know? And that's what, I love what your governor said um, earlier on, uh, you know, when he was making these decisions. He said, don't blame, blame me. You know, the buck mm -hmm. stops here. Um, it's amazing need more to have we need, a leader. We, we need who, that in our personal lives. You know, take ownership. There you go. For it. It's so, something about, I wonder if the leader of a government took responsibility like that. Hmm. hmm. Interesting. Um, sit out there for a minute. So life, and I say this as one, don't, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying let people die. We want to preserve life. We want to mitigate death. We absolutely do. But we also know that there's a certain amount of risk in life. There is disease. There's death. You know, uh, of course, we can't really compare this to the flu. Uh, we we right. know, and I've read a number of articles, it's worse than the flu. It's a respiratory illness. Um, but we also know and because of the antibody testing that's been ramping up, a lot more people have had COVID than we have record for both in cases and in deaths. So that tells me that this is something that folks, folks have been living with, kind of like the flu, um, even though we know it's worse than the flu. And so that led me to ask, you know, just to, to kind of do some, some peeking at numbers. Um, the 2017-2018 flu season was pretty bad. Um, I've seen a couple of different numbers. You know, one number was 80,000, another number was 61,000. So somewhere between 60 and 80,000 people died from the flu. 
Now that's over a six month period because you know the flu season goes from maybe what November, October, November to March. Um, and that led me to ask, like, it, I don't recall us putting other than recommendations. You know, get your flu shot, and you were saying, you know, your daughter's school. By that time, my son was out of high school, so. Um, you know, I wouldn't have, have gotten any kind of those directives. But, you know, if your child is sick, keep them at home, or having a bad flu season. Outside of that, nobody was put out of work. Businesses didn't shut down. We didn't have to do social distancing. And yet, 60 to 80,000 people died. Now, could those 60 to 80,000, could some of those folks have been preserved if we had done something? I don't know. But... You know, and I also look at when I get in my car, right, I incur a risk every time I get into my car. Now, the risk, in particular, depending on where you are, and trust me, it was higher in Texas because we won't even get on the driving there. But, um, you know, there's a certain amount of risk that you take in life and varying levels of risk that people are willing to take. So that's what also leads me to ask the question in terms of our mitigation efforts. Did we need to mitigate? Absolutely. This is worse than the flu. So here, what I'm not saying, don't, don't, mm -hmm. don't, you know, hear me making a comparison. I'm saying, I know, I know it's worse than the flu, but in terms of the mitigation that we take, that we still continue to take, is it, you know, are we trying to eliminate all risk, you know, with this thing, we don't do that with other things, you know. Yeah, we have safety protocols for driving. Um, we know there's certain, you know, places that are more riskier to go, so we don't go to those places. But at the same time, in other areas, like we do a certain amount of mitigation. But in this case, you know, we pretty much shut I mean, put a, a whole lot of people out of work for this. And so I, you know, I asked the question, did so many people need to be out of work? We needed to mitigate, but were those mitigation efforts worth the, you know, um, well, were mean, those, you know, wide you, unemployment, you know, right? I mean, we're, we're seeing a lot of people who are out of work as, mm -hmm. as an effect of this mitigation. Yeah. And, and, and businesses shut question. down. I mean, you know, who, who knows what businesses, I mean, yeah, they were, you know, thank God there was the paycheck, uh, paycheck protection program. Um, you know, some of the bigger uh, industries were bailed out. But who knows who's going to be able to bounce out of this? You know, I have some concerns for the small nonprofit that I lead because this is this is it definitely impacted us and particularly for for 2021. So it's not like I'm talking that I'm far, you know, I'm removed from being impacted. Um, so you know, those are the kinds of questions that I I have been grappling with, um, yeah. just in terms of how how we've handled this. And I think that's fair. I, I think that what we have to – this is where the, the conversation around numbers for me falls, falls short, is when we deal with this from purely a data perspective, um, sure, the numbers of the, – the death rate is not as high as we thought, right? So here in New York, we have a death rate 
um, most likely somewhere between 0.5 and 0.8%, right? Now that's still four points higher than the flu, um, but it's about 0.5 to 0.8. It's about one per every 200 people who get it die. But when you start to extrapolate that out, that's a lot of people. And and this is where I, I just my tendency is towards um, how do we, um, we utilize things like stimulus bills and stuff like that to make sure people are still able to to put food on their table? How do we keep bringing that percentage down by protecting vulnerable populations by making sure that they are cared for and and one way to care for them is by not putting them at risk by ignoring things like masking and it's also for me not putting them at risk by starting to just willy-nilly open stuff up like i, I it's it's a struggle when i read uh, about a a shopping mall in nebraska opening back up like those things I, I struggle with because while I understand the economic engine of something like a shopping mall and how it's helpful for the economy, I also know those things can become petri dishes. Mm-hmm. And and when you have something so virulent, I mean, even the antibody testing is saying, listen, this is um, a death rate, something like 20 times the flu. Um, it's 20 times more dangerous than the flu. Like this is not the, – the comparison here is to 1918. And to that flu that killed 625,000 people in the United States. That's the comparison they're making. Like, that should sit us back. And and so we've we've made a lot of changes. We're still, I think, going to end up eclipsing 100,000 deaths because of this. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we, my, my, I guess the fear of those of us who are looking at the openings up, the, the opening up, we're fearing a second spike. That's what the fear is. Mm -hmm. The fear is that if we open up too quickly, what we are going to end up with is a second spike that's going to double our death toll. And I I don't know what the answer is, because if we don't open up some of our economic engine, then we're going to see a huge death spike because of um, economic born death. You know, uh, food shortages and uh, monies that are being put towards stimulus packages that are no longer being put towards uh, foreign aid that's necessary to help people in other countries, stuff like that. Like, I understand the trade-off is the trade-off, but man, it is um, save life now, figure out how to save life later seems to be more yeah. of my and approach let's be, to this. And let's be clear, just as we're kind of grappling with this, and I clearly lean one way, you lean the other way. Right. You know, and so that's happening in the body of Christ, right? right? We have, we each have opinions. And, and oh, by the way, is this not the opportune time to evaluate what's driving your lens and how much of that is driven by partisan politics? Right. I think this is an, a perfect time to really ask that question uh, totally about fair. what, you know, what's, what's driving you. Um, but we have different opinions. And I think that, you know, we need to, again, and what we've emphasized in this program is always to keep our union in Christ front and center. Right. And to that, I'm going to recommend an article by Costi Hinn okay. called Navigating Different COVID-19 Recovery Convictions. And he's basically laid out that we have opinions across the board. And what the enemy will try to do 
is use those opinions, you know, and how we judge the other person. So the person who is overly cautious and maybe because they have an underlying, you know, they have underlying conditions that they know makes them more vulnerable. But now that person who's saying open up, that brother and sister of Christ that's saying, yeah, maybe we can open up is now the enemy. And listen, that that's the kind that that's the kind of stuff that will fuel Satan. We don't want to give any foothold to the devil over COVID-19. And so I, you know, I could I, I just recommend strongly to make sure that we hold our our convictions about who we are in Christ, our unity in Christ, our unity in the body, even when we disagree over this, hold that front and center. Amen. And, and if we do, then we'll be able to disagree well. My, yes. my, that's that's the goal of what we're trying to uh, to model to folks. Um, clearly, we have a difference of opinion on this, and yet, above all else, we're united together in Christ. We are brother and sister in Christ, and and my prayer is that we see that modeled more and more. It is easier to do it when you're face to face with folks. Um, it is harder to disagree well when you're disagreeing through social media. And so, you know, I would encourage you if you disagree with somebody on social media maybe FaceTime them and have that conversation before you put your really pithy 140 character tweet out there to tear them down. Um, there are ways to, to disagree well with one another um, that I think are, are edifying to the body as opposed to tearing it down. So, uh, you know, one place where we definitely do agree is that this is a time for prayer for the church. We have to continue praying against the spread of coronavirus, continue praying for the saving of lives, continue praying for those who are hurting because of the economic pain of this thing. And um, as we pray together, we look forward to seeing how God is going to bring his church through this um, as salt and light in this world. And so we want to thank you for being a part of today's conversation. We look forward to continuing the conversation again next week. Until then, from Family Discussion, thank you for being here. We will see you soon. Well, thank you again for joining us for this week's Family Discussion. If you'd like to learn more or catch up on episodes you missed, head on over to our home at reformedmargins.com. There you'll find great content about a whole host of issues that we pray will bless your relationship with Jesus, including articles written by Lisa Spencer and me, Marcos Ortega. Family Discussion is a podcast of Reform Margins, a site dedicated to providing a platform for people of color to engage the larger Reformed and Evangelical conversations. Your hosts are Marcos Ortega and Lisa Spencer. Our producer is Larry Lynn. Family Discussion is hosted by Podbean and recorded with Audacity. If you like what you heard today, it would be a great help to us if you gave a quick review and rating on iTunes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to your favorite content so that you don't miss our next Family Discussion.